0: Hello, and welcome to Talking General Practice brought to you by GP Online. I'm Emma Bauer, editor of GP Online, and today I'm joined by our news editor, Nick Bostock. Hi, Emma. Coming up, we highlight some key news stories from the past week. We'll be talking about the ongoing fallout from the now infamous NHS England letter about face to face appointments, including the current state of relations between NHS England and the BMA, and what Health Secretary Matt Hancock has to say about it all. We take a look at the latest problems with Primary Care Support England that has left some practices missing thousands of pounds worth of payments, and we'll be discussing claims that bullying and sexism are still a problem in some local medical committees two years after a landmark review. Later in the podcast, I'll be talking to Dr Catherine Millington-Sanders, the RCGP and Marie Curie National End-of-Life Care Champion, about end-of-life care generally and also how the pandemic has impacted on services. And finally, as usual, we'll be highlighting some good news. That's all to come on this episode of Talking General Practice. Last week, NHS England unveiled two new voluntary enhanced services for practices for this year covering long COVID and weight management. In normal times, these sort of things would usually be joint announcements by NHS England and the BMA and the result of negotiations. However, relations between the two organisations have broken down as a result of NHS England's demand last month that practices should see all patients face to face if that's what they want. and usual discussions between the two have been suspended. The upshot was just hours after NHS England announcement about the enhanced services. The BMA condemned the weight management service as clinically flawed, overly bureaucratic and showing a lack of trust in GPs and their teams. So, Nick, what is actually going on between the BMA and NHS England?
1: As you just mentioned, the BMA's GP committee and NHS England aren't currently on speaking terms Uh, About a month ago, we reported on a vote of no confidence in NHS England by the BMA's GP committee over its instruction for GP practices to offer face-to-face appointments to, to all patients who wanted them. We've discussed that vote in previous podcasts, but to recap, that instruction infuriated general practice for a number of reasons. GPs felt it ignored the current chronic workload pressure on practices and that it fed the false narrative that practices have been, in inverted commas, closed through the pandemic despite delivering half of appointments in person alongside tens of millions of Covid jabs. GPs have also said that ordering GPs to see patients in a particular way is not something that NHS England can demand under the terms of GPs' contracts, and it was not the first time that NHS England had caused offence with messages around face-to-face care. Crucially, alongside the no-confidence motion, the GP committee also voted to suspend all formal talks with NHS England, and said it wouldn't resume talks until NHS England's directors had taken sufficient steps to restore their confidence. So one month down the line, the BMA says NHS England hasn't made a formal approach to try to do that. And now the BMA's reaction to the weight management enhanced service that you mentioned is perhaps the first real sign of the impact of this standoff. So, I mean, where are we now with all of this? NHS England published details of two new enhanced services earlier this month. And uh, one is a £30 million package for long COVID, which the BMA is reasonably happy about. Uh, The other is the Weight Management Enhanced Service, worth £20 million England-wide, so around £3,000 to an average practice. Practices have until 31st of July to sign up to both of these enhanced services. And as things stand, there don't seem to be any signs of a rethink, so they're likely to go ahead. Normally these sorts of packages, as you said, would be negotiated and broadly agreed in advance before publication. So the kind of condemnation we've seen from the BMA might have been what they said in response to a first draft over the negotiating table. But as things stand, GPs are being offered the chance to sign up to an enhanced service that their own union has condemned as fundamentally flawed, unlikely to help with tackling obesity and likely to drive up practice workload.
0: Yeah, well, the BMA response really was quite scathing, wasn't it? I mean, it said... The Red Hound service was clinically flawed, overly bureaucratic, showed a lack of trust in GPs and their teams to do what is best for their patients. Um, Basically said it was a laborious tick box exercise. And potentially, you know, people wouldn't even benefit from it. The health secretary, Matt Hancock, got involved last week as well with all of this. I mean, what did he have to say about the situation?
1: The, The health and social care secretary wrote to the BMA Uh, And in part, he wrote to say that there were no plans to impose targets around face-to-face appointments. He also gave some assurances around micromanagement of general practice, confirming that the government um, and the NHS will move away from the use of standard operating procedure documents, which have been vehicles for delivering advice to practices and other parts of the health service on how to operate during the pandemic. But Matt Hancock has also called on the BMA to restore relations with NHS England imminently, Uh, And the the BMA, for its part, has said it's glad that GP's concerns are starting to be recognised.
0: It's quite clear the relationship's in a pretty bad way. But what is the impact of this likely to be and how does it affect practices?
1: In terms of the weight management enhanced service itself, it could mean money available for general practices lost. It seems plausible that many practices could decide not to sign up for a service that's been condemned in such strong terms by the BMA. So, the the £20 million, which admittedly isn't a lot anyway, may end up going elsewhere. Uh, But in terms of the bigger picture, this doesn't bode well for the chances of NHS England and the BMA's GP leaders working together on how to help the profession emerge from a pandemic that's deepened existing problems around workload and burnout. Uh, There's also a risk that this enhanced service actually solidifies the standoff between the two sides because. For, for all the assurances that have been given around ending micromanagement and so on, it's pretty clear that the BMA felt this enhanced service kind of sums up all the elements of the worst of its relationship with NHS England. They, I mean, they said it it shows a lack of trust in GPs, as you mentioned. It tries to micromanage them, creates tick box exercises, uh, and it was underfunded and it heaped extra work on practices that are already overloaded.
0: We'll be keeping an eye on, this on GP Online and we'll be reporting on developments as they happen. Another problem that practices have had to contend with this week is the rollout of a new pay and pension system launched at the start of June by Primary Care Support England. The system was supposed to give practices better online access to their financial information, but instead practices have found incomplete information or incorrect deductions, leaving some unclear over whether payments they have received match what they've been owed. Even worse, the BMA has said that the problems with the system mean that around 1,000 practices have yet to receive quaff payments, which are worth potentially up to six-figure sums. Nick, this is the latest in a long catalogue of problems that practices have experienced from PCSE, which is run by private firm Capita, isn't it? What's going on now?
1: Yeah, so PCSE was outsourced in September 2015 in a deal worth several hundred million pounds over 10 years. And since then, a whole load of problems have come up with patient record transfers, pension payments, lost data and so on. Uh, Back in 2018, MPs called the outsourcing a shambles uh, the BMA and local medical committees have repeatedly called for PCSE to be brought back in-house by you know, the government, the NHS. Um, and it, it's, the latest problem relates to a new pay and pension system launched at the start of June. Um, it is meant to give practices more control of their financial records. But according to the Association of Specialist Medical Accountants, it's currently just not fit for purpose. Practices have reported all sorts of problems. Some have have not been able to log in at all. Others say data is missing from their records. Others, again, say there are problems such as doctors who no longer work with them being added to their records again, or doctors who do work with them being missed off. Uh, But perhaps the the biggest immediate problem is that the BMA says, uh, as you mentioned, that about a 1,000 practices haven't yet received their Quof achievement payments for the last financial year, uh, and those are due by the end of this month. Off, uh you know, the quality and outcomes framework is effectively performance related pay that accounts for about 10 percent of practice's annual income. Uh, most of this is delivered up front throughout the year as aspiration payments and nearly a third of it, the achievement payment, comes at the end of the year. So an, an average practice could be expecting up to £30,000 and larger practices could be waiting for amounts, as you mentioned, into six figures Any significant delay to those payments would be really significant because practices would have budgeted to receive the money and they may well be relying on it to pay staff, for example.
0: Well, yes. I mean, problems with payments at the minute is really the last thing practices need, given all the other stresses and pressures they're under. And I can only imagine that this is causing quite a big headache for people as they try and chase down all these missing payments and information that they need. Final story I'd like to talk about this week is one that Nick wrote on our website about claims that bullying and sexism continue to be a problem in some local medical committees two years after the landmark Romney Review investigated sexism at the BMA. Local medical committees are independent of the BMA and while the Romney Review didn't specifically look at issues around sexism and bullying in LMC's, committees themselves have voted to formally welcome its findings at national conferences and call for regular reports from the GP committee on work to stamp out the sexist and bullying culture.
1: So in in 2019, um, we published stories about GPs experiencing sexism, sexual harassment and bullying while working in the BMA. And those stories led to the BMA commissioning a lawyer, Daphne Romney, to carry out an independent investigation. Her findings confirmed what we'd reported uh, and her report, the Romney Review, put forward 31 recommendations around changing the culture within the association that were accepted in full by the BMA uh, and which have also been welcomed by LMC's. But we've reported this week on a GP whistleblower who's experienced behaviour that's almost a checklist of the bullying behaviour highlighted in the Romney review while working in a local medical committee role. And not only that, but the whistleblower said that the person responsible for the bullying was actually undermining work to implement lessons from the Romney review, while at the same time actually displaying behaviour that the review said had to stop. LMC's are independent of the BMA, as you mentioned, uh, although the BMA GP committee is made up largely of people from LMC's. So that is something that links the two. Uh, The BMA has said for its part that it's working hard to get its house in order and only this week it published an update on work it's been doing to to try to improve its culture and to implement changes uh, proposed by Romney. Uh, That that includes a a 24-hour helpline, an independent complaints process, mentoring for committee members, a network of elected women among other steps that that have uh, gone ahead. And Dr Rachel Alley, who's the BMA's Gender Diversity Champion as well as Devon NMC Chair, told me that there was a lot of good work going on in Millie NMCs to make sure that they uh, adopted recommendations from the Romney Review. But um, this story is just an important reminder that nearly two years on from the Romney Review, in some places within general practice, there is still a lot of work to do in this area.
0: Yeah, thanks, Nick. I mean, it is a really interesting story that, and if anyone wants to read it or any of the stories that we've discussed today, you can find them on our website at gponline.com. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Catherine Millington-Sanders, who's a GP in Kingston in Surrey and the Royal College of GPs and Marie Curie National End of Life Care Champion. She has experienced as a specialty doctor in palliative medicine and led the design and development of the UK general practice core standards for advanced serious illness and end of life care, which are better known as the daffodil standards. Catherine also sits on the newly formed UK Commission on Bereavement, an independent commission looking at how to better support bereaved people through and beyond COVID-19. And she's heavily involved in the What Matters Most Charter, a UK-wide initiative aimed at supporting people and communities to have earlier conversations with their loved ones around what matters most at the end of life. Can I just start by asking you, what led you into specialising
2: in palliative and end-of-life care? I think I was really lucky early on in starting medicine, that I had great advice about basically follow what you enjoy. And then I had some great mentors who I learned so much from and really watching that good medicine includes excellent conversations and basically i love talking with people um, and understanding what really makes people tick and this becomes just so crucial and important when um when you're unwell and particularly when you're dying so what really matters and the beauty of different family dynamics becomes um much more clear and being able to have Good dialogue with people about that and um, being able to support them right through to the end makes all the difference. And the combination of being a GP specialising in palliative care is that you actually then maintain those relationships and families that are, are lifelong, which is, you know, particularly wonderful, I think. What are the sort of problems and challenges around end of life care in the community at the minute and in general practice and its role with end of life care? Well, we've done a a couple of national surveys on this via the RCGP and Marie Curie partnership to general practice. And right now, particularly because of the pandemic, obviously, it's huge pressures um, and workload, IT systems that don't really connect. um, And in my view, there's just not enough funding into primary care. Um, And that sounds obvious, but 25 percent of um, the health and care care budget is actually on the last year of life. So, um, there should be significant investment, I think, being able to support this. And we've got circa 300 million patient consults each year, and that's compared to say 23 odd million in A&E visits. And so if general practice is actually failing, then that means the whole of the NHS is failing. Yet only a year's worth of GP patient um, costs is less than two A&E visits. And so we really need to sort of see this investment increased into primary care, to be able to support family doctor services. Um, You know, that's been reduced over the last 10 years. So I think it's about time, particularly since we've seen the pressures and the crisis of the pandemic. And it's really at that sort of bottleneck squeeze point that we saw, A, how we actually rallied in general practice, um, but B, how we needed that investment.
0: How exactly has the pandemic impacted
2: on end-of-life care and end-of-life services well, it's certainly tested so this is to the hill. <laughs> yes. I, I think it's um, it's shown some of the greatest strengths that we have. I think um, it's definitely shown how general practice has rallied and worked together and how our teams and how incredibly dynamic our teams can be and how resilient we are um uh, shown i think the incredible goodwill of the nhs staff that we've got and actually um patients being able to see and recognize that in you know, the clap for carers and um and it's a, a a point but um it's shown how our communities can come together um and equally it, it's shown the test and the, the failing points in different parts of the system and where things were probably already broken and underfunded, it's revealed those cracks more significantly. And I think it's, there's a real opportunity to uh, learn. And, you know, there are different researchers like Sarah Mitchell, who's very interested in general practice and palliative care, who's uh, you know done some great surveys with general practice um, teams to understand what the gaps are. Um, are in community and primary care services and end-of-life care. And I think it's just taking stop and the opportunity to be able to look forward because if, if we have this again, which we're likely to at some point, then actually what are we going to be doing differently and how are we going to continuously learn and how are we not all going to be rushing at pace? It's how are we going to invest in our teams? How are we going to be able to support resilient cultures? And not just with tick boxes, but actually really investing in our teams and supporting us to be as good as we we all really can be. And I think one one fabulous part was early on in the pandemic, we got given permission to rethink and do what really mattered for people. And so there was an opportunity, you know, lots of um, GPs are actually just being able to have a look at the lists and call the people and spend time with the people on the phone because we didn't have lots of the different bureaucratic paperwork and things that we had to fill out. and, And it was just really about being there for our patients, showing that we cared, documenting what mattered most. And it's how do we draw out some of those parts and continue it in our work rather than having to go back to lots more of the process things.
0: Yeah. I'm sure there's lots of GPs that would agree with that, (laughs) definitely. One of your roles is with the RCGP and Marie Curie as their end-of-life care champion. Um, Can you explain a little bit about what that role involves and perhaps talk a bit about the
2: daffodil standards and why they were developed and what they're aiming to do? So the RCGP-Marie Curie partnership is something I'm really excited about. And end-of-life care is obviously continued priority for general practice probably now more than ever. And I think stood us in hugely good stead that we'd had several years Prior to this, of great partnership working with Mary Curie with the college. The initial ask was really um, to just simply put on some traditional star masterclasses around the country. And then we started to track, you know, what the impact and the feedback um, was. And the feedback was fantastic. But then we realized that we are only really reaching maybe per masterclass 50 to 100 GPs in each session. And yet our vision was to be able to support GPs and our GP teams across the whole of the UK. So we ran and a couple of national surveys over a couple of years. And, you know, the continued messaging was that general practice played this vital role in the delivery of care to people approaching the end of life. But it also started to highlight some of the issues and challenges and areas that general practice wanted support with. And so we kind of galvanized on this, on trying to understand and get the results of what people really wanted, rather than, you know, this kind of assumption of this is what we think they want. And we aligned parts of the different policy, basically working with over a couple of years in consultation, we looked at developing a consistent methodology and framework in order to be able to support general practice to give the best possible end-of-life care to all of their their practice population.
0: So can you explain how the standards work in practice for GPs and
2: their teams? So the daffodil standards are basically the UK general practice standards for advanced serious illness and end-of-life care. And There are eight standards and they're offering GP relevant self-assessed structure and all the resources are completely free and they're online to help you start and these are a sort of blend of uh, quality statements, evidence-based tools, reflective learning exercises and quality improvement steps and they help that each practice assess against their baseline and that's whatever your starting level um, in order to be able to build on the good work that people are doing and so the of the eight standards there are Two to seven, which are basically they follow the patient pathway from identification all the way through to care after death. And then standard one supports multi-professional development um, and leadership. And standard eight is really crucial, uh, looking at compassionate organisational development, support both patients and also staff, because if we're not feeling compassionate from Um, things that are happening in our own life and if we're experiencing life issues crisis loss um, or caring for someone then actually you know all the evidence shows that our own resilience in being able to care for other people is challenged and it's it's how as an organization in general practice do we support our staff and each other and as well as obviously our patients. And so there's also guidance for scale implementation in primary care networks. And um, there's a pack for um, practice uh, patient participation groups as well. The most important thing is just to start somewhere. And that's what I've I've learned so clearly working with different practices is the ones that just pick an activity. They um, look at their data. They choose what they want to, what they're going to be improving on. And that each tiny improvement step can make a big difference.
0: How do you see the development of integrated care systems sort of affecting palliative care and funding for
2: end-of-life care? And what role do primary care networks have to play in end-of-life care going forward? I mean, there is just a fantastic opportunity for us to get end-of-life care into a priority in all of our ICSs. So fundamentally, my view, and obviously I'm biased, but I think that end-of-life care should be a priority for uh, for every ICS. And an important question for me is how we then are combining our urgent care budgets with mental health budgets for support before, during, after death, so that we're not working in silos because end of life care crosses all of these budgets and it's important for us not to have a continued siloed approach if we learned anything in the pandemic we have to be more dynamic we have to be able to respond to differences in our population and the other part is you know the sort of um, improving equity of um, socially and racially underserved communities it's important that we're able to do that in a dialogue and being able to understand who's actually coming to our services and yet a reflection. on who's actually in our communities. General practice is crucial to that, whatever the leadership structure is within that. And I think primary care networks are a great opportunity to be able to do that. We're not very good in this country when it comes to talking about death and dying. Do you think it's important that we start discussing it more widely? And what do you think would help to make that happen? I think we're getting a lot better. Um, There's of it we know from the evidence that there's a mismatch of clinicians waiting for patients to start the conversation, um, and patients then waiting for clinicians to start the conversation. So when that happens, often conversations just don't happen. But I, I do, and again the pandemic has really evidenced that so much is that I think we've we've over medicalized the process of um and the emphasis that it has to be related to healthcare professionals. I mean, sure, there are important Um, uh, treatment options that I think it's really helpful for us to to know about from a medical aspect but who leads those conversations I think really there should be a much um, much improved sort of movement and there's a large social movement about talking and having better conversations so Marie Curie for example has the talk about um, campaign and during Covid we set up a, a, a think tank with the RCGP and end-of-life care partners about um, what matters most conversations. And so starting the important conversations about how we live and from now basically right to the end of our lives um, is about asking ourselves what matters to me, who matters to me. And this is, it changes the dynamic from um, thinking about, you know, just treatment options um, and harm reduction and even, uh, you know, treatment reduction and asking uh, having discussions about people with what they don't want and reorienting that into a much more positive and actually comfortable conversation for for clinicians to have with people about what matters most and who matters most to you when we're planning for for your future Uh, conversations are important to you and your family um, but they're also important in with your gp and your healthcare professionals and i think this reorientation could really support um, The actual process of advanced care planning for some of those treatment options for um, future health care.
0: I sort of mentioned at the start that you are a member of the UK Commission on Bereavement, um, which is a relatively new thing. Can you just explain
2: a bit about that and what it's hoping to do? So the main thing is that the um, UK Bereavement Commission will be seeking views of organisations and individuals over the summer So I would just encourage as many of us as GPs to share our views. Uh, The the key research by Lucy Salmon and Emily Harrop showed that um, many people face significant challenges in dealing with bereavement during the pandemic. And the the research also highlights that people need much more awareness of support options, information on grief and bereavement services. And this should basically be provided proactively following a death and made available online and in the community. Um, This was countered with the important evidence that one in five people reported feeling uncomfortable asking for help. Um, And that there were huge levels of unmet need in terms of support. So it's trying to have an understanding of really what's needed going forward and learning from the pandemic. So again, I just encourage us as GPs and GP teams to basically share share our views during the commission.
0: Thanks very much to Dr. Catherine Millington Sanders for talking to me. Um, you can find a link to all of the details of the Daffodil Standards on the description for this podcast. So we've just got time now for our regular good news spot. After the year and a bit we've had, I think it's safe to say that all GPs and staff in general practice deserve recognition for the work they've done and how they've kept services going under such enormous pressure. It may not be possible to individually acknowledge everyone's contribution, but it was good to see some GPs recognised in the Queen's Birthday Honours, which were published just after the last episode of our podcast. I thought it was worth giving all of them a mention here. Glasgow GP, Dr Kerry Naylan, who is also Deputy Medical Director for Primary Care at NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde, received an OBE for her services to health and social care, particularly during COVID-19. Dr Murthy Montipali, a GP in Accrington in Lancashire, received an MBE for services to education, training and support for black, Asian and minority ethnic doctors and to general practice. A lot of his education work has been around supporting international medical graduates. Dr. Anne Connolly, a GP in Bradford, also received an MBE for services to primary care women's health in the city. Dr. Connolly is a GPSI in gynaecology, the RCGP's Women Health Clinical Champion and Chair of the Primary Care Women's Health Forum. And Dr. Maurice Conlon, a GP in Birmingham and National Professional Standards Lead and Clinical Advisor to NHS England and NHS Improvement, received an MBE for services to health during COVID-19. Congratulations to all of them and you can read more about the honours list on GP Online. That's it for this episode. Don't forget you can keep up with all the latest news affecting general practice from our website, gponline.com. Thank you for listening and thanks to Nick and a big thank you to Dr Catherine Millington-Sanders for speaking to us this week. If you have any comments about the podcast, please do get in touch on Twitter at GP Online News or by using the hashtag TalkingGP. And if you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate us and subscribe to Talking General Practice from wherever you get your podcasts. We're back in two weeks. See you then.